I'm Sterling Fox in for Jill Bennett on a Saturday morning, three degrees downtown Vancouver right now. As we continue with our coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic, people are calling out other people for referring to the novel coronavirus as the Wuhan virus or the China virus. How is social media shaping our view of how we're handling this pandemic and and what to do and and influencing perhaps some decision-making, perhaps among younger players on the field particularly? And why do some people insist on the China virus designation? Here to help us sort it all out from the University of Toronto and the uh, Factor Interwash Faculty of Social Work is Professor Rupalim Bouyan. Good morning. Good morning. It's nice to have you with us. We appreciate this. We we have a rather large Asian population in Vancouver, as you might appreciate, many of whom are taking grievous exception to this notion of the China virus that is uh, being, well, rather forcefully uh, presented to the world by no less than the President of the United States. What do you make of all of this? Right. I think it's, a, it's an unfortunate turn to see how kind of long histories of racism and xenophobia um, are fueled by the legitimate fear people have around their own health, the uncertainty and the misinformation that's often spread around something like a novel virus. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, this is not new. We see the, these waves of racism, especially around people's fear of disease, has spread over centuries and often tied to the bodies of people who are already experiencing different kinds of discrimination and marginalization. And we're certainly, and again, apparently there is an abundance of evidence uh, to support that uh, in, in terms of people moving to those conclusions unnecessarily. And fear, of course, is the driver. Would you agree? I mean, I think there's a couple aspects here. There is fear of the illness and certainly the troubling statistics in terms of how quickly COVID spreads. I'm not in public health, so I'm also trying to learn how to protect myself and also protect others by Mm self-isolating. And then there's also the kind of projection of that fear on groups that are already stigmatized and marginalized. This happened centuries ago with the yellow fear. This happened under SARS in 2003. We know this happened when it when it came to HIV, when it first came um, forward and how stigmatized people who were LGBT were. So I think the fear, unfortunately, really taps into existing racism. Um, there, we know the rise in hate crimes has been going up um, in recent years. It's always been the highest for people in the Black or Caribbean African community, as well as Jewish and Muslim communities. And this is another example of how, as you mentioned earlier, social media can really drive these underlying racist sentiments. And I think we really need to collectively organize against them because it can have negative consequences, not only on the lives of those vulnerable, but also economic consequences um, people who are afraid to go to the police because of discrimination they may be facing, um, as well as the potential for real harm on those who may be experiencing illness and afraid to come forward. Yeah, and, and this is where it gets a little creepy. Okay, it gets beyond creepy because now we also understand that on the Internet, a lot of these racially motivated uh, uh, postings, etc., are in fact deliberately put there by nasty forces who employ bots the world over to sabotage 
information and spread disinformation. So on top of all of the human reactions that are involving fear and other motives that you've described, now there's a whole other agency at play deliberately interfering with social media. Yeah, I think you're right. I think social media is a wonderful platform to connect, um, to get information, and it also can be a space that really heightens these polarizing views. Um, And there's a real economy behind it. So as you were saying, there are groups or individuals who make a profit in spreading hate, um, literally make a profit because the number of tweets or clicks you get can generate income. Yep. And we see this across the board with social media. It really has led to more divisive politics. I also do see some promising cases of people standing up against hate crimes. um, And there are also some need to gather better evidence. So there are many groups across Canada and different parts of the world who are trying to develop better tools to track hate crimes. Mm -hmm. Again, against um, Asian in this case, but also Black and Indigenous, Jewish and Muslim communities. So I think this is a time for our governments to better track hate crimes and also to find ways that we can also seek out really accurate information, um, especially around the public health risks and what we can all do to collectively care for each other. Mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, we've certainly heard at the radio station here over the past few weeks the the protesting of uh, members of the Asian community here in Vancouver, particularly the Chinese community, of course, with respect to this sort of growing wave of uh, animosity and racism. I wonder, though, Professor, whether as you take a look at the big picture across Canada and then and look across the line, and I'm not trying to whitewash anything north in, in, of the 49th parallel by any stretch, but is the situation in Canada as weird as it is in the States? I mean, we don't have the leader of our country specifically engaged in a personal propaganda war with the president of his greatest enemy and throwing uh, phrases and slurs at each other across the Pacific Ocean like kids on a playground. Right. And I think, yeah, I think it's really hard to put like a a real measuring account on this. Um, Certainly, um, President Trump has been fueling hate. And we know that this creates all sorts of problems in terms of encouraging that hate in different communities. Um, The leadership in Canada hasn't taken that route thus far. And I think that's that's somewhat um, promising. We also, however, see um, really widespread forms of individual harassment. We see examples of individuals who are targeted, people who are targeted while they're commuting, who are targeted at work. We see risk of people losing their jobs. And we also see kind of more structural issues. So as governments across Canada, the provincial and federal government are trying to figure out how to support people, especially given the economic fallout. Those most vulnerable are already likely to be racialized, as well as immigrants with a precarious status. Mm-hmm. So I think we do need to pay attention to both the individual acts of harassment. And, you know, there have been, like I said, we don't have completely accurate accounts of hate crimes, but there are troubling examples of this all over. And I think the the structural pieces, like which communities will be able to get workplace compensation, which communities have access to um, uh, health care, which communities have access to food banks, emergency shelters. Do we have health care for all? Ontario recently announced just um, this week 
they will be providing free health care to anyone irrespective right. of their insurance yep, status. Heard that. Yep. Um, so we need more like broad spanning supports. And unfortunately, across Canada, racialized immigrants, including those of Asian background, tend to be overrepresented in those living in poverty, as well as those with a precarious immigration status. So it might be embedded in our system, which is very un- un- unfair and unequal. Interesting. And I think we need to really make sure that our response includes everyone, not just those who we see as belonging to Canada because of their citizenship and immigration status. Um, those are some of the things that we need to pay attention moving forward. I only have a minute left, Professor Bouillon. It's great to have you with us. Final question for you, because it's been a fairly negative tone to the conversation so far. We're not out of the woods yet at all. This is going to take a while uh, as we self-isolate and social distance and all of those things and come to an even greater understanding of how we actually are all in this together, like it or not, does that provide some ground for more common understanding? Yeah, actually, this is this for me is something I've been talking a lot. I teach social work and have many colleagues who work in community-based organizations. And I think people are really reflecting on the potential to connect with others. I see forms of community care where students are volunteering to support people, those frontline healthcare workers. Mm-hmm. Um, There's a group of medical students at University of Toronto offering free babysitting and delivering groceries to those frontline workers. I see people in my neighborhood having conversations, making sure the elders in their community have what they need. So I think this is an opportunity, and I do see people really standing up. So as we're walking, trying to get some fresh air in between self-isolating, even making eye contact with those people that we're walking away from just to kind of recognize each other you got it. and keep, keep the humanity in the story. So a lot of stigmatization and discrimination is around dehumanizing people and seeing them as less than or as the cause of our problems. And I think this is really a time for us to humanize each other and see each other as capable of supporting and moving forward together in something that's unprecedented. Interesting stuff. Very nice to have you on the program, Professor Bouillon. Uh, We appreciate your time very much. Thank you. Thank you for your time as well. Goodbye. Trying times in the restaurant and hospitality industry? Absolutely. And not just locally. It's a national issue. However, what we're going to talk about is how British Columbia, and particularly Metro Vancouver, food service establishments are faring during a time of, well, uh, reduced activity, to say the very least. Always a pleasure to welcome Ian Tostenson to the airwaves of CKNW. Ian is the president and CEO of the Restaurant and Food Services Association. Good morning. Good morning, Sterling. I just got to say, you're just a fascinating program you put together today, so thank you. Well, uh, a full uh, full marks to the production team behind it, too. James and Andrew have done a terrific job. Uh, so, Ian, how about taking the temperature for us at 7 o'clock on a Saturday morning on the first weekend of spring? How are we doing? Uh, boy, we should be filled with tourists. And restaurants, uh, it's not happening. So you're seeing a complete shutdown of the hotel industry practically coming down British Columbia. And uh, yesterday's announcement by the uh, health minister, or uh, chief health medical officer, uh, prior to yesterday, restaurants in Vancouver and bars and pubs were closed with takeout only. And the rest of British Columbia was still open for business with limited seating, but she shut the whole thing down, which... You know, um, it's, it, it's something I think we have to do. Um, we've got to get a handle on this virus. And so uh, essentially right now throughout British Columbia, um, it's, it's takeout and delivery. 
Um, you're probably not seeing everybody doing takeout and delivery. It requires a certain amount of, you know, a certain amount of technolo- technology to do that. Sure. Um, there's some great companies, so obviously Uber Eats and Skip the Dishes, they're out there. They're businesses that people are signing up a lot. Uh, but here's here's the sad start. As we triage the last week and try to assess what this industry needs, we're you know we're, we have about 180,000 people that work in this industry with 13,000 restaurants. And I would say this morning, Sterling, that probably 80% of that is shut down. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at probably 130, 40, 50,000 people out of work, and most businesses um, are shut down. And so the problem here now is. How do we how do we look to the future, whatever that is? Is that two months, three months? Yeah. How do we get employees safe? You know, every single business I talked to last week, the first thing they said is, how do I take care of my employees? Mm-hmm. What is there for my employees? I mean, it, we're the hospitality industry. And so uh, EI, so we've been working really hard to connect that portion, employees, to the federal packages. Now we're working with the employers because they've got all sorts of stresses. I mean, I had a gentleman call me yesterday. He said, I, I owe $13,000 on April 1st for my lease, and I'm not even open. Mm-hmm. And I don't have $13,000. And so between leases and then employer's health tax, and it just goes on and on. So we're hoping that there is, between the federal government and the provincial government coming this week, there's a package that will bridge that gap because most independent restaurants, most restaurants, they can't sustain two or three months of no cash. That'll be the end of it. And I worry that our industry will come back with significantly or a significant less amount of players than it has today. Sure. Now, let's let's just go back even just a month ago, Ian. So we're mm-hmm. now in, in mid-February, right? Even at that point, before any mass closures or uh, intervention by the provincial governments and medical authorities and so on, even before all of that happened, we were already hearing about restaurants, particularly in Chinatown, going under simply because they were their their vacancy rates were 80 plus percent and that was through the entire chinese new year se- season when people typically fill restaurants you can't get a seat at this this case you were 80 to 90 percent empty and some restaurants were closing this is a month ago ian so if that was the case in terms of desperation a month ago uh, with uh, and you know we're operating on pretty thin margins in a lot of cases in the restaurant business so it's catastrophic by comparison a month later, isn't it? Well, it is. You know, we're you know, about 4% before tax margin. Uh, there's not a lot of cash in this business. A lot of it is uh, is, is a cash flow business. If you have customers in, you can pay your bills. Now, when you think about that, and I think you and I even talked about that, we were sort of saying, okay, well, that's the Asian restaurant has uh, got a problem because there's, you know, because of how this whole thing started. And we were almost thinking, but we'll be fine over here. Yeah. Like, we're just going to continue on our business here. And we we didn't see the tsunami coming. We didn't see, you know, all of a sudden it was like the switch, you know, there's some turning lights off and went, what? And we're now we're all exposed. It was just horrendous. And uh, But I can tell you that um, there are some great minds while we are working together to, to find a solution here because there's just way too much at stake. Um, the provincial government has uh, been very good to work with. And, but the reality here, and to your point just a few seconds ago, Sterling, is that 
the world is over now for governments to say, you know what, we're going to put up the minimum wage, we're going to add a health care tax, yeah. and we're going to add a, a carbon tax, and we're going to put an environmental tax. I mean, and we've been telling them for years, you just can't keep doing this because you're going to take it away. And now what we've shown, what we're showing right now is we have no staying power because of all that high cost uh, to get through this. So we've asked the government of, of uh, British Columbia to basically suspend this. We've asked the city of Vancouver to suspend property tax increases, all these things that were just in a high economy that we thought was happening. It really wasn't underneath us. There, there was, we had a cold, yeah. and now the cold has turned into pneumonia. Absolutely. Do you sense any appetite for such relief to be provided, particularly by Victoria, Ian? Yeah, I do. Um, they it's, it, so we we know what we, we need. We we know that we you know if we're able to do that. But um, the government needs to sort of take our sector and then they have to take the tour, tourism sector and add it all up. Yeah. Um, this is going to be really costly. But I don't think anybody cares. But yeah, we there are some things that we need to do. We need to take care. I think premier's talking about uh, you know rent relief, making sure people don't get evicted, and sure. taking care of people. We're looking at some stuff with liquor. Um, that would really help the industry, you know, the ability to uh, order liquor when you order your food, when you have takeout. Mm-hmm. We're looking at um, some pricing mechanisms around uh, liquor so they could, the restaurants can buy it less expensively, if you will. Right. And that increases margin, and that'll set the tone for when we do come back online here because we've got to create more profit margin for these restaurants. To uh, It's going to take a while for us to start up, and hopefully, you know, we've got the employees out there that have been serving the public for so many years so loyally that are still there waiting for us to uh, to rehire. You've already used the number once, but t- tell us again, remind us again, how many people in our area are employed in the food service business, Ian? Well, we're 60% of about 180,000, but let's just look at the province. There's 180,000 people employed. Okay. And I think that there's probably two, th- there's, uh, it's hard to say, but... You know, now with yesterday's closure, I would say that 80% of them are not working today. They've I know. Been laid off. That's right. And look yeah, at that. That's the, a lot of people. It sure is. And the Prime Minister himself talking about the, the uh, number of applications, 27,000 a year ago this week, 500,000 plus this week, many of them regrettably in the food service business, Ian, and that number is not going to diminish in the foreseeable future, is it? Well, no, and it's even restaurants are even a uh, topic of uh, uh, priority discussion at the White House. Because they realize that it's you know it's the, the restaurant industry in in the United States is the second largest uh, employer next to government, and we're about the third I think in British Columbia. So it's significant. It's it's a highly mobile workforce. You know this this is a workforce that's not it, it's working from almost you know week to week in terms of if, if its own cash. So uh, you know there's, there's thousands of people out there right now that are really sort of going boy I I don't have any backup here so. Um, you know, we've got to make sure, and I think the government gets that. I mean, we're, they're not at all saying, no, no, we can't do this. I think it's a question of, well, when and how and how much. And uh, so we've, we're, we're 24-7 on this. We have resource center at bcrfa.com uh, that connects all of this into the industry, and we're working with our industry leaders and colleagues, and um, we're going to do everything we can to protect the employees and protect business and get this back online as fast as we can, which that's the big question, right? Is it two months, three months, six months, or is it four weeks? No one knows. Absolutely. The BC Restaurant and Food Services Association website, again, is bcrfa. Is it .ca, Ian? 
Uh, BCRFA.com. If you're in the biz, it's a great place to go and, and at least uh, have a landing spot to find out what the heck is going on. Ian Tostenson, thanks for your time this morning. Fingers crossed for a little relief from the province, and uh, we'll just get through it together. We'll talk soon. Hey, Sterling, order out tonight. We were talking with Mike Agarbo, whose Get Connected show will kick in at 10 o'clock this morning here on CKNW, about some of the necessities being the mother of invention sort of thoughts that this crisis, this COVID-19 crisis, is going to create circumstances under which new platforms, new software, new ways of doing things are going to happen. And one of the the good stories, such as they are in these trying times, comes from craft brewers and distillers all across Canada, in fact, all across North America, many of whom have recognized, hey, we're pretty good at producing alcohol. In fact, we think we're the best. And now, well, there's this World Health Organization recipe you can go to on the internet and turn one of your gin bins into hand sanitizer. One of the many distilleries that has gotten on board with this laudable project is Central City Brewing right here in Vancouver. And uh, with us to talk about the initiative is the brewmaster at Central City Brewers. Gary Lowen is on the line. Gary, good morning. Good morning to you. Gary, I would assume Lowen McKinnon Whiskey, that single malt Canadian that uh, Central City Brews, has your name on it for a reason. Yeah, yes it is. Uh, We are very good fans of whiskey as well as beer uh, doing that as well. And how long has it been since you and your team at Central City, Gary, uh, took the time to to make the decision to dedicate one of your alcohol production units to hand sanitizer? Well, we've been looking at this for the last couple of weeks and trying to come up with the right way to do it. Um, It's not just easy as uh, taking alcohol that we have here and putting it into a bottle. Sure. So, yeah, it, uh, you know, like you mentioned earlier, the World Health Organization does have a protocol on how to do it properly. Sure. But I wouldn't recommend it for anybody doing it at home because uh, if you're using ethanol, which isn't like your gin bin, um, it's very highly flammable and uh, it's, it can be dangerous. Uh, and I, I was being facetious with gin bin, by yeah. the way. Yeah. By the way, which, which production line, just a straight curiosity question, Gary, which production line did you stand down in order to create this, the hand sanitizer? Well, our, our, we have stills in our, in our production of whiskey and gin and rum and other spirits that we do. It creates ethanol in, in, in the World Health Organization's recipe. Ethanol is one uh, is the main ingredient really to sanitize your uh, your skin. Ah, so it's a byproduct of all of your brewing of distilling processes. Then, yeah, absolutely, it is. You know, it's not going to shut us down um, as far as making spirits, but it's it's not hard to you know to you know bring in the hand sanitizer component. Um, in mixing it, we have a stainless steel vessels too, which. We can uh, create this uh, cocktail for the public and uh, do it do it safely. Um, you know, like mixing uh, a flammable product uh, can be dangerous. If you do it inside a stainless steel tank, you're going to be a little more safe doing that. Interesting. And uh, to whom is this, the hand sanitizer that Central City Brewers uh, is currently making? To whom will that be available, Gary? Uh, we're going to make it available to the public. So we are located. 
great. And we are going to, you know, uh, the City of Surrey has also asked us what we can do. And so we're going to, you know, we're going to uh, give some to the City of Surrey and use their uh, powers of distribution to send off stuff where they think they, uh, City of Surrey needs it, but we'll also send it to the public and anybody else that may need it and as much as that we can make. So the City of Surrey is on side then, and you're able to use their distribution network to everyone's advantage. Yeah, I think they know who's going to really need it more than maybe we do. And, you know, there's the obvious people that need it and the public needs it, but there may be stuff that we don't know that they know uh, where to send it to and to get into the right hands, so to speak. Well, that's terrific. How long have you been making it? How much have you made so far, Gary? Well, you know, we haven't actually made any so far because the, some of the ingredients uh, that are needed in it are, aren't don't just come from our distillery. Okay. Uh, for instance, ethanol uh, usually is charged by the government. Uh, they pay tax you on that. So the only way to get away around that is to denature the alcohol in that product. And uh, when you denature it, you have to use another product like isopropyl alcohol, which right. we use as well. Mm-hmm. And that makes it so, so nobody can drink it. I mean, there's some of these distilleries uh, that you've heard of, they're, they're making 65 or 70% alcohol and putting it in a solution. I'm not sure what they're doing, but if they're not denaturing it, anybody can pick it up and drink it. Yeah. You, would, you wouldn't want that. So, and, and the other thing about hand sanitizers is uh, if using glycerin or glycerol like we're going to do, which is, is a product that helps spread it on your skin with, and that doesn't dry your skin out, right. um, you need to put hydrogen peroxide, uh, a little bit of hydrogen peroxide in that mix to kill the spores that may be in the glycerol, or it may be in the container itself, because isopropyl alcohol and ethanol may not kill the spores in the other products that you or the container you're using. Which, so for, really, for lack of a better phrase, you need to sanitize your sanitizer right. to make it proper. It's a long process, but it's well underway. And congratulations to you and your team at Central City Brewers and Distillers, Gary Lowen. Uh, well done, sir. And uh, make sure you get uh, a, an extra large batch to kick things off. Thanks for you for joining us this morning and all the best to you and your team. Yeah. And then I just you know, want to say stay safe for the public and uh, hopefully we'll get everything out and we'll get as much in everybody's hands as we can. I am on a website called westernaviationnews.com. Here are this morning's headlines. Swoop drops international flights until May 31st. Air Canada Union expects 5,000 layoffs. Pacific Coastal to ground its fleet. Canadian North to screen passengers for COVID-19. And de Havilland and Viking stop aircraft production. Some pretty dramatic stuff, and that's just this morning's news. The publisher of Western Aviation News is Brett Bala, and he joins us now. Good morning, Brett. Good morning, Sterling. It's good to have you with us, sir. Terrible news. It just, uh, I mean, you scroll through the website. It's an excellent website. You're certainly very current with your information. None of it very palatable, however, Brett. It is just so hard to find anyone who's being upbeat at all. Um, about the situation in airlines. Uh, It's just every day, every hour, there's another blow coming. And... It, no one can see an end in sight. That's the real challenge right now. Well, that is the problem, you know, and, and this, you know, this, this makes the whole 730 Max story or 737 Max story that we've been following for a year seem minuscule by comparison. And of course, it isn't or wasn't, and it's still an ongoing story very much. But Brett, as we look ahead, I guess the big X factor is when, or more, more to the point, 
how long? Because a lot of these airlines, especially the smaller regional carriers, are operating on some pretty thin margins to begin with. Well, exactly. You mentioned Pacific Coastal, and that one it really touches my heart because it's a homegrown airline. It, sure. it serves all kinds of communities up and down uh, uh, throughout British Columbia. You know, they're grounding their fleet for a month and two weeks or so. But there's no guarantee that they'll come back. And right. meanwhile, they still have to pay leases on their aircraft. Um, their staff costs will go down, obviously, and their fuel costs will go down. But it, you still have to rent out space. It's, 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 the, the expenses never end, but there will be no income coming in. And is it, is it down to none for some of these local or smaller carriers, Brett? It's, and we, we noticed that, that, you know, Rouge and some of the other uh, budget versions of the major carriers have all closed down simply because so many people are not flying. Has it come to the point with the local smaller regional carriers that actually no one is flying? Well, there's, that's a good question. Uh, obviously, in Pacific Coastal's case, there won't be. Uh, Central Mountain Air has, uh, has not announced their plans. Uh, they serve a lot of the uh, communities in BC that you know, really depend on getting out. So say all these airlines shut down, which is a possibility. Yeah. How do people get around? Prince Rupert will be without air service. Haida Gwaii will be without air service. Uh, Comox. So all these people are now having to look at driving, which, okay, fine. What about people who can't drive? Or mm-hmm. for people who drive is too long? Or, you know, getting out of Prince Rupert is not an easy task if, uh, if uh, the weather sets in. And, and so it, it gets to, there, there, there's still some essential trips that have to happen. How do you make those happen now? It might just completely shut down. It's possible. Interesting, because now, and, and, and I'm so glad to have the publisher of Western Aviation News on, because here's a question that a lot of us are, are it's in lurking in the backs of our mind. If they ground everything or everything gets grounded, obviously it's not going to affect air ambulance service locally. One would hope, Brett, uh, but we don't even know about that, do we? True, we don't. Although I did talk to an operator of an air ambulance service just yesterday uh, who told me that they expect that part of the business to keep going. And so Helijet, which operates a lot of the air ambulances down in the south coast here, right. uh, they'll probably be able to maintain their fleet because people, you know, accidents still happen. Um, people still have heart attacks. Therefore, you have to get to the major hospital. Sure. So you'd have to think that those helicopters and those planes will keep operating. So at least that essential service for medical services will be there. Um, but say, you know, your mother's dying in, uh, in Williams Lake. Well, how do you get there? Mm-hmm. And that's going to be a real challenge for some people. Let's talk a little bit about survival for some of the air carriers. Now, we know the big carriers uh, are looking to the feds for some kind of bailout, some kind of beyond just tax deferrals, which they've already offered, but some tangible, as in real dough, uh, relief. Uh, Is that going to go beyond the WestJets and Air Canada's, Brett? Is some of that going to trickle down to fleets like Pacific Coastal? That's a real concern, especially for the small carriers, because uh, um, the industry, the, there's two different industry associations. One represents the big carriers who have already been talking to the federal government. Sure. And one represents the smaller carriers, and they have had far less access to politicians to get their point across and say, hey, don't forget us. Um, in the past, it's been, uh, for example, 9-11 is probably the most uh, concrete example we can use to apply to this case. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the, the help was spread out. 
So the smaller airlines are really, really trying to get the message out that don't just think of the big guys. We have to be here too because we provide service to communities that the big guys will never touch. There are hundreds of airports in Canada, 200 airports in Canada that have passenger flights. And say Air Canada, the biggest airline, only serves 64. Sure. So that tells you that there's a lot of communities that depend on these small regional carriers that will, they're the only ones who will come. Air Canada won't look at it. It's too small. Sure. Now, Brett, you talked earlier about uh, the problems that the cash flow realities that cause smaller fleets like Pacific Coastal and other local carriers face. As, as you say, if nobody's flying and nobody's working, so there's no cash flow in, but the reduction of cash flow out to staff and fuel uh, is, is minimized as well. However, there's still a matter of the overhead of the aircraft and their maintenance. Yes. Uh, and Now, homeowners are going to be able to get some relief from their mortgage lenders to the tune of up to six months deferral. They're not going to go away. They're just going to tack them on to the end of the term. <laughs> yeah. uh, will, will airlines, uh, smaller carriers, also be looking for similar deals with their financial people? Yeah, that's exactly the kind of situation they're going to have to do. They'll, because the, the message has to be, we will have income eventually. We just don't have any now. Right. Um, and, and, and let's face it, the, the people, the lessors, the people who are leasing out these aircraft, <laughs> they don't want really to have all these aircraft on their hands that they can't do anything with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a last resort to move in and repossess the aircraft. Uh, you'd much rather keep it in the airline's hands and work towards future revenue. Um, but of course, those lessors also have to pay the car loans on the planes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it, it really comes down to how willing are the banks to play along with these businesses? How viable are they? Um, and what does the government think of their business model? And therefore, are they eligible or are they worthy of continuing support through these horrible times. Interesting stuff. Well, of course, that is still very much on the negotiating table. Brett, in our final couple of moments, I wanted to zoom in on your top story of the morning at uh, westernaviationnews.com. De Havilland Viking stop aircraft production, and the subheader says it's a result of COVID-19. Explain, please. What's the story? So Viking and De Havilland are both owned by Longview Aviation, which is out of Sydney, out of Victoria. And uh, they have both been making passenger aircraft in particular. Uh, the Dash 8, sure. which everyone knows. Great and also Exactly. And the Viking, uh, the, the Twin Otter, mm-hmm. which you see on the harbor front every day. Well, unfortunately, demand for those aircraft has dried up. And this comes back to the smaller carriers who operate them. If they run out of cash first, they're going to cancel their orders first. Um, and so 980 people, you know, good-paying jobs in Victoria, you Calgary, bet. and Toronto, 980 people now, they're, they're joining their, 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 the other people from airlines on the EI rolls. And that's effective this weekend then? And that was effective right away. Yeah, they, uh, they said we're stopping production. And the worst part is, the, 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 the most heart-wrenching part of this is for people who love air, airlines and air aviation, they don't know when or even if they'll restart their production. Their, 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 their uh, news release was full of words like, we hope to. Yeah. Yeah. Restart production. And that is just a scary thought. Some mornings just uh, getting up feels like you're almost stepping off a cliff, doesn't it, Brett? Oh, it sure does. Thanks for this this morning. Not the best of news and the happiest of conversations, but we do appreciate your insights into the uh, struggling aviation industry. Thanks very much. You're welcome.